reading comes from several places in Scripture. First of all, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And there we will read verses 1 through 17. The, the common thread that ties together the various scripture readings that we'll be reading this afternoon is the kingship of Christ, the kingship of, of Jesus as the Messiah. So beginning then, 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king... that. Uh, that is, David, said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all, in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, for, up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So far from Second Samuel, let's also turn now to the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 23. And we'll read just the verses 1 through 6. There God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear, they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So far from Jeremiah, and then finally we'll turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. Acts 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus." And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So far, our reading of Scripture. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 132, stanzas 6, 7, and 10. And sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we've been working through Lord's Day 12, uh, We've, we've been seeing how the title Christ uh, not only describes who we, de- de- who we believe Jesus to be, we call him the Christ, uh, but also has implications for who we see ourselves to be as, as Christians. Uh, we saw already that the title Christ means that Jesus is a great prophet, the, the great prophet sent by God to show us the way of salvation, to lead us in the ways of God. That's what the calling of a prophet was. Uh, and, and we saw that this has implications for us, then, as Christians. If we say Jesus is our prophet, that means we are his disciples. Uh, and so we saw that it, to be a Christian means to be a disciple of Christ. That means to listen to him to follow Him, to obey Him as a prophet sent by God. Uh, And then the third principle we've seen is, uh, not only does this describe who Christ is, and therefore who we are, 
But because we as Christians are anointed with Christ, we share in his anointing, that has further implications for, for who we are as Christians. Uh, to be a Christian is to be anointed with Christ uh, by the same Spirit to all of the same offices and callings. So, if Christ is prophet, you are anointed as prophet. Uh, we are called Christians as prophets to testify as prophets do, to the truth of God, to proclaim His Word. We do that to ourselves, preaching God's Word to ourselves. We do that with one another, and we do that towards the whole world. Uh, That's Christ calling as prophet. Then we saw Christ calling as priest, uh, seeing that He is the fulfillment, uh, not just of the, the priestly role, but of the whole of the priestly system, the temple, the sacrifices, and the priests, all find their fulfillment in Christ. Uh, he, he is not only the great high priest, he's the sacrifice for our sins, and he's the temple by which we worship God. And that too has implications for us. Uh, we saw that it mean, to, to be a Christian means we are people who know ourselves to be redeemed by his priestly work. Uh, we, we are bought by the blood of Christ and reconciled to God through Christ. That was the work of a priest, and it finds its fulfillment in, in Christ. And again, because we're anointed with Him, that has further implications for us with respect to priesthood. You and I, as Christians, are called to be priests, to serve God as priests. Uh, so we carry a priestly role. We offer our lives as sacrifices to God. We, we worship God in His holiness, and we intercede for one another in our prayers as the priests of the Old Testament would do. Uh, so we've seen this with respect to Christ as prophet, with respect to Christ as priest, and now in, in our third uh, sermon, we want to think about Christ's calling as king. Uh, when we confess that Jesus is the Christ, We are confessing He is the King of kings. The King who rules with the authority of God on behalf of God over the whole earth. Uh, When the Jews uh, thought about the title of Christ uh, or Messiah in Hebrew, it's probably kingship that they would have thought of first. That's the thing that would have first come to their mind. The Christ... If you were to ask a Jew of Jesus' time, who's the Christ? Uh, Most of them probably would have responded, well, he's the son of David. He's the heir to the throne of Israel. Uh, He's the ruler over Israel, and some may have even had the wisdom to recognize he's the ruler over the whole earth. Uh, This idea of Christ as king goes back a long ways in, in Scripture. Uh, The idea of a king is, of course, tied together with the idea of a kingdom. Uh, You can't talk about Christ as king, except by also speaking of the kingdom over which he rules. Uh, And the kingdom of God is a huge theme in in Scripture. Uh, Israel was called, already back in Exodus 19, Israel was called to be the kingdom of God. Uh, That is to say, the place where God's justice, God's righteousness, God's rules are abided by, are enforced, and are displayed. Uh, So the kingdom of God 
is, is simply that place where God rules. Uh, that's, that's the definition of the kingdom of God. Wherever God rules, where God's law or God's righteousness holds sway. Uh, Proverbs also speaks extensively uh, about the, the kingdom of God and, and the blessings of the land where righteousness is enthroned. Uh, even when God, even further back, when God called Abraham, uh, his promise to Abraham was that I would make a great nation of you. And there's an implication there for kingship. And he, and he explicitly says, and kings shall come from you. Uh, God says to Abraham. Uh, Abraham would have thought of that along the lines of the kings of his own day. You might think of the God-fearing king Melchizedek, a man we know very, very little about, but he was described as the king of, of Salem. He was a priest king. He also had a priestly uh, function. Uh, so there were God-fearing kings even before the kingdom of Israel uh, who understood something about the rule and reign of God, about the kingdom of God. Uh, during the time of Moses, uh, Moses uh, or, or God himself was the king of Israel, and he ruled through Moses. So Moses had a bit of a kingly role, uh, as, even as a prophet. Uh, he appointed judges. He would make decisions on behalf of, of Israel. He would arbitrate disputes uh, within Israel. After him, Joshua would have taken up that kingly role, leading the people, uh, ruling over the people as they conquered the land of Canaan, as they divided the inheritance. Uh, Joshua was the man in charge. He was the king, uh, even as, as a judge. It's, it's especially, though, when you get to the book of the Judges, that, that Scripture really hones in on the need for a king. It's the most common refrain in the book of Judges uh, where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And every time you read that line, what follows is some gruesome, terrible story of things that were going on uh, in that time. Uh, so, so Judges really focuses our attention on the need for a king. Uh, it, is, it is not enough for God simply to rule over the nation uh, through, through, through prophets and through judges, uh, but God wanted to establish a kingdom where there's authority, uh, where, where a man rules. Uh, that first king comes in 1 Samuel. That's King Saul. And if you know anything of the story of Saul, uh, he, he turns out to be a, an abysmal failure. Uh, he was not committed to the kingdom of God. His life's goal was not that God would reign through him over his nation. Uh, rather, he was committed to his own kingdom, his own dynasty, and, and he becomes uh, even an enemy of the kingdom of God. And then you meet David. And David is, is painted as, uh, as the, the picture of the godly king that we should be waiting for. Uh, unlike Saul, David was truly from the heart committed to the kingdom of God. He made it his life's purpose to establish God's righteousness and, and justice. 
Uh, and when God anointed David as king, uh, we, we read from, from 2 Samuel some of the promises that accompanied that anointing. Uh, he made a covenant with him to establish his kingdom. Uh, this is first in, in, in 1 Samuel, and then it's repeated in the text that we read. God made a covenant with, with David, uh, I will establish your kingdom forever. Uh, I will place a son on your throne who will rule forever. It's a big promise. And it's the promise, as we've been working through kings, it's the promise that comes back again and again. The shaping promise for the future of God's people. Uh, However far they go astray, God constantly reminds them, yeah, but I made a promise to David and I'm going to keep that promise. Uh, So this becomes then the the very core of what it means to be Messiah. As the Jews hoped for the Messiah, waited for the Messiah, they were thinking in the first place, he is the son of David. The one that God promised is going to reign on David's throne and be a king like David after God's own heart. Now we we learn very quickly, uh, as we saw even this morning, the kings that came after David were not the fulfillment of that promise. Not his son Solomon, not his grandson Rehoboam, not the other kings that came after. They were all terrible failures. And so as Scripture progresses, uh, the, the prophets start looking forward to the fulfillment. God made a promise. Is he going to keep it or not? And, and the prophets start looking forward to this Messiah I want to give just a couple of, of Scripture references to, to get a picture of, uh, of what this means. Uh, so Isaiah 9, verse 6, uh, the prophet Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, it's a very kingly, earthly role, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, there, there was an expectation, a man, a human being is going to come and he's going to rule over at least the land of Israel and as the prophets later show, even much further than the land of Israel. And so Micah 5 verse 2 says, You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will dwell secure, for he shall be great, not just to the ends of Israel, it says, but to the ends of the earth. So the prophets are looking forward to a king who's much more than David, one who will rule on behalf of God over the whole earth. Uh, You think of the vision of Daniel, in Daniel 7, uh, where he sees one like the Son of Man coming before the throne of God, and and he receives from God, uh, Daniel records, he receives dominion and a kingdom that, not just Israel, but all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him. Brothers and sisters, when we call Jesus Christ, that's what we're saying about him. He is the king to whom has been given dominion, not just over us, not just over the church, not just over Israel, but over the whole earth. Uh, We're saying he's the fulfillment of the whole of David's, uh, of the promise made to David. 
Uh, this is why the Gospel of Matthew traces the lineage of Jesus back to, uh, through, through Joseph back to the royal line of David. Uh, he's the king of Israel and the king of the whole world. This is also why in the birth story uh, given in Matthew, Matthew takes the time to tell the story of these three wise men. Uh, These are not Israelites. Uh, They're not even close to Israelites. They're Persians living way off somewhere near Babylon. And they come all the way there to worship the king born in, in Bethlehem. Uh, this is also when, when Christ uh, was put on trial before Pilate. The question was asked to him, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, the, the Jews understood very well what this king was to be. Uh, and, and so also, even after Christ died and rose, what were his parting words to his disciples? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a dominion. That's a kingship, a kingdom. Uh, All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of not just Israel or Judea, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And and what else? Teaching them to obey. That's the, the, the authority of a king. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Uh, that's what we we confess when we confess that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who rules on behalf of God over the whole earth. This was the confession of the Christians that got them into so much trouble for the first several centuries of the church. Uh, We read from uh, Acts 17, uh, where we see a glimpse of that in, in Thessalonica, where they were proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, and there was a great disturbance in the city as a result. Uh, and what's the accusation that's brought against the Christians? It's not that they worship foreign gods. The, the Greeks were able to tolerate that. Uh, the, the thing they were accused of is they're all, they say they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. See, even the, the, the Jews who were making these accusations, they understood very well what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. It means Caesar's not the ultimate Lord. It means the government of Canada is not the ultimate authority or the government of any other country, but rather that Jesus rules over the whole earth and that all people everywhere must submit to him. Uh, in the first centuries of the church's history, it was this. This was the reason for the intense persecution that the church experienced. Uh, they were required to confess Caesar is the highest Lord, and they refused to do so because at the heart of the Christian faith is this confession, no, Jesus is the highest Lord. Well, that, brothers and sisters, then is what we confess when we say Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of David, as promised. He's the King anointed by God to rule over the earth, and that all authority, both in heaven and on earth, belongs to Him. Uh, and, And then further, that one day His kingdom in accordance with all the promises of the prophets, His kingdom is going to fill the whole earth. One day, all peoples, all nations, all governments, all languages shall serve Jesus as King. 
Uh, now, if we're going to rightly understand this confession, then, uh, we do want to think about the nature of this kingdom. Uh, w- what does it mean that all governments, for example, shall serve him? What does it mean that Jesus is king? Uh, is, uh, are we going to have governments that, that, that formally, structurally uh, put their authority in, in Jesus uh, and, and rule with the words of Jesus? What does it mean? For Jesus to be king. Uh, When Jesus was was interrogated by Pilate uh, over his kingship, Jesus told Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, then my servants would be fighting. Now, this this quote is very often taken out of context to mean uh, that Jesus' kingdom is merely spiritual and has no earthly implications. Uh, so you've got the government of Canada, and it rules on its authority, and you've got Jesus who rules spiritually on his authority. That's not what Jesus uh, says, uh, nor, nor what he means. Uh, he, he is not saying that his kingdom is, is spiritual and therefore has no earthly bearing, but he says, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would be fighting. In other words, his kingdom is different from the kingdoms of the world because it doesn't establish its authority by coercion or force. This is where Christians think very differently about the dominion of God than Muslims. Uh, the, the Quran teaches the dominion of God over all the earth, like we do, but established by physical force and coercion. Uh, the Christian message is radically different. Uh, the kingdom of God is different from the kingdoms of this world, and it derives its power, it derives its presence from the throne of God and not from the powers of the world. It's not like an empire like, like Persia and Greece and Rome that sends its armies out to, to, to destroy and coerce so that all would be forced into submission, but rather it goes, it goes out into the world through the preaching of the gospel. Uh, the, so the kingdom of Christ, again, uh, exists wherever Christ reigns in the hearts and lives of Christians. That's how the kingdom of God goes out. Not by force, but by proclamation of the gospel that produces a change of heart that leads to a change of life. Uh, Unlike the empires of the world, uh, the kingdom of Christ then will not go forward by force. It will go forward where hearts are changed by the good news of forgiveness and redemption in Christ. It doesn't come through physical and violent uh, confrontation, uh, but, but rather it goes forth as, as hearts, lives, and then as lives are changed, communities are changed. As communities are changed, nations will be changed. That's how the kingdom of God goes forth. Now, of course, as, as Christ establishes His kingdom uh, through the preaching of the gospel and the power of His Spirit, He will make enemies, and He does make enemies. Uh, There are forces in this world. Uh, The kingdom of darkness uh, is is what they're called in Scripture. Forces of this world that are violently opposed to the kingdom of God. Uh, That reality is not going away until the fullness of Christ's kingdom comes when Christ returns. Uh, it's been observed that when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey, on, uh, where, 
where he was received by the Jews as the, the son of David. This is Palm Sunday. Uh, they laid palms in front of him and cried, Hosanna uh, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, so Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, and a donkey was not only what, what kings traditionally rode when they ascended to, to, to be uh, crowned king, uh, but a donkey also symbolized a coming in peace. It's not a powerful animal. It's not a violent animal. It's not, it's not a very uh, agile animal. And it symbolizes a coming in peace. But in Revelation, when you get to the end of Scripture that, that paints the picture of Christ's return, He's no longer coming on a donkey. He comes, rather, on a horse symbolizing strength and symbolizing war. Uh, When Christ returns, he'll be returning in judgment to finish the conquest of his kingdom that began with the gospel, began with the proclamation of good news. Uh, When he returns, he will finish conquering his kingdom by by force. Uh, The Apostle Paul says that he shall reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Some of that happens now. As the gospel goes out, as hearts are changed, Christ's enemies are placed under his feet. The enemies of sin, death, Satan, and and the the works of darkness. Uh, That's how that happens now. When Christ returns, whatever enemies are left will still be put under his feet. But it will not be through the good news of the gospel. It will be through force. Uh, But either way, both now and then in its fullness, the kingdom of God uh, through Christ is coming. It's here already, and one day it shall be over the whole earth. Uh, One more thing about the kingdom of God. We want to recognize the kingdom of Christ is a good reign. Uh, Psalm 72, we sang a bit of it earlier. It's one of those messianic psalms that the whole psalm is just devoted to painting the picture of the reign of the Messiah, uh, the beauty, the glory of that kingdom. Uh, And it shows it's a good reign. It's a reign that is good for the world. Uh, Psalm 72, then verse 2, May He judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Uh, Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor and of the the cause of the poor of the people. May he give deliverance to the children of the needy, and may he crush the oppressor. The the reign of Christ is not something that is imposed upon the earth against the earth's uh, will, uh, that the earth is then coerced into accepting that which is bad for it. The kingdom of Christ is good for the earth. It is the justice and righteousness that the earth so desperately needs. Uh, in, in other prophecies, the kingdom of, of Christ is, is tied together with the end of warfare. Uh, they will beat their, their spears into pruning hooks, uh, says, says Isaiah chapter 2. Uh, the, the rain that, that, that is coming to this earth through Christ is a rain of righteousness, of justice, of defending the poor and the needy, of bringing an end to the injustices and evils that exist in the world. It's a rain of victory over the powers of evil, over the powers of darkness. Uh, that means dictator states will crumble before the kingdom of Christ. Uh, crony capitalism will crumble 
before the kingdom of Christ. Uh, Those who take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable will be put to shame by the coming of the kingdom of Christ. And all of those things are true even in this age, in the age of the church. As the gospel goes out and people and communities and nations are changed, uh, the picture that the prophets portray is the gospel will change the world, will change nations. Uh, the, The wonderful thing about living now then in the age of the church is that we have the privilege of seeing the kingdom of God growing right here in our own midst. Uh, As hearts are captured by the gospel, lives are changed, injustices are brought to an end, and there the kingdom of God is built. Uh, One of the great hymn writers in in the Christian tradition was John Newton. Uh, He was a former slave trader, uh, a captain, in in fact, of several slave slave ships. Uh, He he himself, as a young man, was was on the receiving end of of terrible uh, injustice. He had even worked as a slave himself. In, in West Africa, uh, and, but, but then he, he ended up becoming a slave trader. Uh, and he describes himself as a miserable and evil man during all of those years, whether it was as a slave or as a slave owner. He, he says, I was a miserable and evil man. Now, his conversion to Christianity uh, was not the sort of immediate, radical, uh, dramatic conversion that that we we often think of. It was a gradual conversion, and and he writes this uh, as he writes the story of his own life. Uh, Part of it came from, uh, there was a moment in a storm on one of those uh, ships when he thought the ship was going to sink, and and he prayed to God. Uh, But he, he says, at that point, I still wouldn't have described myself as a Christian. It was over the weeks and months afterwards as he began to read the Bible uh, and he began to see patterns of sin in his life called out by the Word of God uh, that he began to change. Uh, The interesting thing is with John Newton, he continued, even after he became a Christian, he continued working as as, as an owner of a slave ship for several years. Uh, he, he knew there was an inconsistency there, but it didn't change all at once. But it was over time, as Christ's Spirit worked on him, as the gospel message sunk deep into him, uh, that, that that miserable, evil man was changed. He was transformed, uh, and he became a humble and penitent believer. Uh, Even after years later when he did eventually retire from the slave trade, uh, it was not till 34 years later that he became someone who actually spoke out against it. Uh, It took a long, gradual process of Christ working on his heart. Uh, now, uh, Newton, John Newton would eventually become a, a, an ally of William Wilberforce, a, a name that we're, many of us are, are familiar with. Uh, he was the, the leader of the campaign to end slavery in, in England. Uh, and, and that campaign was a campaign driven by Christian conviction. There you see the kingdom of God establishing itself through the gospel. No, no outside force compelled the English government to, to abolish slavery. But rather, the gospel, as it changed hearts, as it changed lives, as Christ changed hearts and lives, people changed and policies and laws and governments changed with it. 
Uh, Newton uh, is, is, of course, most famous for writing the hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound to save a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. I once was blind, now I see. That's the change that Christ works that leads to a whole change of life. And that, brothers and sisters, is a picture, a glimpse into what the kingdom of Christ is. Where the gospel takes root, lives' hearts are changed. Uh, So when we confess then that Jesus is the Christ, uh, this is what we confess. He's the King of kings, that all authority belongs to Him, that all people uh, are called to submit to Him, and that the whole world will one day be brought, uh, partly now and partly on the final day, under His dominion. Uh, If that's what it means then, for Jesus to be Christ, what does it mean for you and I to be Christians? Uh, that's, that's the second question we want to ask, and, and it will be brief. Uh, what does it mean for us to be Christians? In the first place, it means we are those who confess Jesus to be Lord. Uh, that's what we saw in Acts 17. The Christians confess that Jesus is Lord. Uh, for many Christians... Like for those in Acts 17, this is a dangerous confession. Now, this is why our brothers and sisters in China right now are experiencing such intense persecution. Uh, it's a dangerous confession to say that Jesus is Lord. Uh, it's viewed by the government as a subversion of, of the state. Uh, and in many ways it is. It is a subversion of the state. It's saying there's a higher authority to which we will submit, uh, that stands above this government. Uh, But that is fundamental to our identity as Christians, to say Jesus is our Lord. Now, because we confess that Jesus is Lord, that means that for us, we declare ourselves to be His subjects. If He is Lord, we are His subjects, under His authority and loyal to His kingdom. And so fundamentally, a Christian in this respect is someone whose heart, and therefore also life, is ruled by Christ. That's what a Christian is. One whose heart and whose life is ruled by Christ. Uh, The lordship of Christ, the dominion of Christ, begins right here in our own hearts. Uh, so, So when we pray, your kingdom come, What are we praying for, Uh, first of all? uh, The thing we're praying for in the first place is not something that happens in the distant future. Uh, The Heidelberg Catechism makes this very clear. That's not the first thing we're praying for. We are praying for something right here, right now, in our own hearts and lives. May we be so ruled by your word and spirit that our lives would conform to your righteousness. Uh, so so the, the kingdom of Christ takes its hold and its first uh, stronghold in the hearts and lives of believers. Uh, to be a Christian is to recognize Christ must reign here in my life and in every area of my life. Uh, that means my whole life is open and exposed before his dominion. There are things that, that happen in my life that must change, that must be brought under His dominion. Uh, not just on Sunday morning, but also on Friday night. And also on Monday morning, my life shall be ruled by my King, the Lord Jesus. 
To be a Christian also therefore means uh, that His Word, the Word of Christ, becomes the standard of our lives. Uh, Where His Word corrects us then, we change course. Uh, We respond to His Word. Uh, We don't just confess His name, Jesus is Lord, and then go off and live by our own rules and our own preferences. But rather, His Word becomes the standard for our life. We submit to Him in humility and and in reverence. Uh, This is why as a church, every every year we study the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's, It's bringing ourselves under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There we learn His will for for our lives and we examine our lives in light of His Word, the one standard for our life. so if that then is, uh, so we've, we've looked at what it means for Jesus to be Christ as king, for us to be Christians as subjects to the king, and then finally we want to consider briefly, what does it mean for us as Christians also to be anointed as kings and queens? That's the third uh, principle that we confess. Uh, I am anointed by the same spirit as Christ and therefore called to be a king, to be a queen. What is that mean in the life of a Christian? Well, in the first place, it means that we not only submit our lives to Him as His subjects, but we also become those who love His kingdom, who pursue His kingdom. Think of Jesus' words, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We, we become those who, who seek His kingdom and His righteousness. Uh, we become loyal to His kingdom, uh, not just subservient but loyal. There's a heart difference there. Uh, We become loyal to His kingdom. We learn to love His justice. We learn to desire uh, His kingdom in our our own lives. Uh, We we are not then among those who, who bow the knee to Christ because we have to. We are those who bow the knee to Christ because we love to. Uh, That's what it means to be a king or queen with Christ in the first place. Uh, So all of us will have different uh, levels of jurisdiction uh, depending on on our own lives. Uh, For all of us, every one of us, you have jurisdiction as a king or queen over your own life. Uh, you, You rule, you're called by Christ to rule over your life. Now, some of us will bear authority or jurisdiction over the lives of others. Uh, But all of us bear immediate jurisdiction over ourselves. Uh, And so as Christians, we say to ourselves in the first place, Christ shall reign here in my heart and here in my life. Uh, Christ shall be king here. This person shall be an extension of the kingdom of God. Uh, As far as God has given me authority over my life, over my body, over my routines, and over my habits, I will see to it that Christ is enthroned as king in this life. Uh, this is where it always begins, and this, is, this must always be the primary place where Christ rules. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, uh, Let not sin reign over your mortal body. Uh, there it is in our own lives. Uh, there's a battle for lordship. Who shall reign in my life and in my body? It shall be Christ. Uh, as kings, we are then called to be warriors. 
We fight. Uh, the, the catechism emphasizes this especially. We fight with a good and free conscience against sin and the devil in this life. And that begins right here at home in your own life. Uh, the primary responsibility of a king then is to defend his kingdom. And that starts right here at home. Uh, Now, some of us are also, on a second level, called uh, with authority and jurisdiction over others. And there, too, we must see to it that the kingdom of Christ reigns, that Christ would rule through us. Uh, So those of us to whom God has given children, uh, your family is an extension, is to be an extension of Christ's kingdom. You are to rule over your children as a home that is under the dominion of of Christ. Uh, His will must be the law of your home. Uh, This becomes very practical in in the rules that you'll establish for your own home, Uh, whether it's the standards of entertainment that you allow into your home, uh, the patterns of behavior that are considered acceptable in in your home. All of these are to be ruled by the authority of, of Christ. Uh, On another level still, some of us are given jurisdiction over businesses uh, and over others in the workplace. And where we've been given such jurisdiction, we are to see to it that there too Christ rules. Uh, The kingdom of God is not limited to people or to homes. It also is visible in businesses, in institutions. There too Christ must rule. Uh, So as Christians, we conduct our business uh, by His standards. Uh, Our businesses are to be distinctly Christian businesses. Uh, They are to be honest in in a way that's different from from the rest of the world. Uh, We are to serve the well-being of our clients uh, as Christian businesses. Uh, That also means there are certain businesses that Christians have no place or part in uh, because those businesses promote things that are opposed to the kingdom of Christ. Uh, As Christians, we have no business in the the recreational marijuana industry because that has no place in the Christian life, in the kingdom of God. Or we have no business in the sex trade. Uh, you, you cannot, as a Christian, work in a brothel. You cannot, as a Christian, work in a strip club that's, dis, that's, that's opposed to the kingdom of God. Uh, we have no business working in, in the lottery or in casinos. There, there are businesses that are off-limits to Christians. Uh, as Christians, we recognize our job is never merely a job. It's never just an income. It is always to be an extension of the kingdom of Christ. Uh, And finally, you might consider one one additional level of jurisdiction, and that's those who are in government. Uh, uh, Those in government are given a jurisdiction to see to it that where they rule, insofar as they rule, Christ would rule through them. Uh, The lordship of Christ should be honored even at the level of government. Uh, there, there are many Christians who draw too sharp a line between church and state and say that the state must somehow be, be governed by its own moral standards. Of course not. Christ should rule over the whole earth through uh, every government. Uh, there's no such thing in the Christian worldview as a secular government. Every nation shall be ruled by some law, and it will either be the law of Christ or something else. 
Uh, So whatever jurisdiction Christ gives us, we are called as Christians to rule there, to make that place a place where the law of God and the rule of Christ is honored. Uh, We are called to to further the reach of His kingdom as well, to to practice righteousness and further the cause of justice. This is why as Christians uh, we have institutions like ARPA uh, that that advocate before our government for the cause of justice in in relation to abortion, um, euthanasia, and and other uh, governmental issues. Uh, we, We want to see the will of Christ enthroned even in, in the public square. Uh, as we've said over and over in our, in our series in Colossians, uh, how do we live? We live kingdom down, not culture up. We let the kingdom of Christ come down to this earth through our lives and through all that, that we do. Uh, so, brothers and sisters, as we then conclude this, uh, this, this four-part series on discipleship, on the name of Christ and on what it means to be a Christian, uh, it, it is providential that we, we can finish this series uh, with a public profession of faith as, uh, as our brother stands to profess his faith in Christ. Uh, as we do this, uh, let us understand well then what our brother Jacob is confessing. Uh, He is confessing that Jesus is the Christ, meaning Jesus is my prophet, is the prophet uh, to to whom I I listen. He is my priest, the priest given by God for me. And he is my king, the king who rules over this earth to whom I serve. Uh, Understand then, Jacob, and understand, brothers and sisters, uh, as you think of each of you of the professions of faith that you have made, uh, understand that our confession that Jesus is Christ has great implications for you as Christians. Uh, You are disciples of the prophet sent by God. You are the people redeemed by the work of Christ, the high priest. And you are subjects and citizens of Christ the King, citizens of His good kingdom. And you are called to honor, fear, and obey Him as your Lord. And understand further still that you who are united to Christ with His Spirit are also then called to speak His Word as prophets. You are called uh, as priests to offer up your lives as sacrifices of thanksgiving to God. And finally, you are called as kings and queens to, put, to bring forward the cause of His kingdom, to, to establish His righteousness, to wage war against sin and evil, and to show mercy to the downtrodden and the disenfranchised. Uh, there is no greater identity or calling than that of a Christian. It is a noble title, it's an honorable title, and it points to a great inheritance as well. Uh, and it comes with great responsibility. Uh, so Jacob and, and brothers and sisters, do consider the calling, the great calling with which you have been called. Uh, the tremendous honor it is to bear the name of Christ and, and then pray by His Spirit that He may also enable you to live a life worthy of that calling. Amen. Let's sing in response from Hymn 40.